Welcome everyone to What is Black, a parenting podcast that addresses issues important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and teens. I'm your host, um, Dr. Jacqueline Dujay, and on today's episode, I get to speak with Dr. Elizabeth Hinton um, about her new book, America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and Black rebellion since the 1960s. Dr. Elizabeth Hinton is is an author and an associate professor of history and African-American studies at Yale University and a professor of law at Yale Law School. So welcome so welcome to the show today, Dr. Hinton. Thank you so much, Dr. DJ. Oh, it's a pleasure. So you can call me Jackie. <laughs> I just want to make sure I give give you your due your due credit. So you know I can continue to call you Dr. Hinton or I can go with Elizabeth, whatever you prefer. Whatever you prefer. I'm good with either one. Okay, so Jackie's Jackie's good for me. So again, thank you. It's a pleasure um, for you to for you to join me on this show. Thank you, Jackie. It's a pleasure to be here. And so, you know, before we started the interview, I was praising you about this book because for me, like I said, it connected all the dots, right? Um, For this season, I'm really talking about how do we move forward, right? There's no, there's no new normal. There's no going back to normal after all the events of last year, right? Right. And I don't know if we want to go back to normal, right? So, this idea of, you know, looking at different systems and how they serve Black families and Black children. Of course, um, the judicial system, criminal justice system, right, has a long legacy of how it, how, you know, how it, how it, how it interferes, right, or um, interacts with, with Black communities. So I wanted to jump off by, 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 by saying that, you know, I, I loved your book because I was trying to figure out like how to do this, right? How to have this conversation about not just about police violence, right? But really looking at historically and then even the moment of moment in time that you choose, right? The 60s and 70s. So before I go on any further, if you can just tell us a little bit about um, America on Fire, please. So there's, and there's so much that we can say about um, the the kind of criminalization of Black youth and the impact of the the, the rise of, mass incarceration and uh, and the modernization of policing in the late 20th century on Black youth and Black families in particular. But America on Fire is a history of, uh, of Black rebellion, Black political protests uh, from the 1960s to the present. And it really encourages us to recognize the ways in which Violence uh, directed, you know, often precipitated by um, a police encounter during that period was very much rooted in the the same shared grievances of the mainstream civil rights movement. That is for equal jobs, access to, or sorry, decent jobs, um, access to equal educational opportunities and full economic and political inclusion in American society. And so so the book tries to reckon with this violence. Um, Much of it was um, done by young people. Uh, Some as young, some people as young as not just high school age, but 10 and 12 years old. And this was the most dominant form of protest uh, from the the late sixties to the early seventies. And it, it, it encourages us to think about, you know, why, this form of political violence or rebellions persisted and the misguided, the missed opportunities and the, and the, and the misguided set of investments that policymakers at all levels of government made, not into 
investing resources into communities that would have led to more vibrant families and a whole different set of outcomes, but into police and surveillance and incarceration. And of course, you know, as the events of last summer demonstrated, we're still very much living with the consequences of this failed policy choice and the failed and misguided set of punitive policies that have really defined um, domestic programs in the United States since the civil rights movement. And, you know, what you're saying, again, resonates, you know, I got goosebumps from your conversation because I was remembering a quote um, I heard from someone and I don't, unfortunately, I don't remember who to attribute the quote to, but they talked about, um, they mentioned how policies you know, related to priorities, right? Exactly. Whatever whatever the priority is, we create a policy for that priority. And, you know, what the book I think does so well, you know, like you spoke to, is the fact that, you know, police really both became a verb and a noun, right? So they did everything. They policed everything. And they ultimately were left responsible for addressing the social ills that, you know, the government or society decided not to like not to invest in. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you said that you, you said that so beautifully. And that's one of the things that the history in, in, of, in this book and that my first book really traces that, you know, the the kind of modernization of police began in the mid 1960s, began during the height of the civil rights revolution and progressive social change, but also in a moment when. Uh, many Americans, especially younger generations, were 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 pushing back against or or, or resorting to violence as a way to um, to to force the changes that uh, that nonviolent direct action protests had not brought about. And instead of investing again, instead of in addressing the root causes of of rebellion, the socioeconomic root causes, and meeting the demands of the mainstream civil rights movement, which were shared. Uh, policymakers made the decision to divest from, ultimately divest from social welfare programs and invest instead in policing and surveillance and incarceration. So out of this period of the 1960s, you know, we don't get a job creation program for low-income people of color that, of course, would have changed life circumstances for uh, for families of color and children for generations, we get a job creation program for police, which of course changes life outcomes and conditions for black families that are targeted by these punitive policies for generations in devastating ways, instead of actually ha- helping to build healthier and vibrant communities. Now in your book, you mention a couple of terms. So you have, you describe what's called the cycle. And I was wondering if you could speak to that and I think it speaks to um, to your opening about what the book is about. But again, if you could just talk a little bit, because I love that um, that simple that simple word, right? That just kind of just just again connected those dots for me. So I was wondering if you could talk about what the cycle. Yeah. So so one of the things that you know that we've been stuck in that that really kind of emerged in this in this period is the cycle of police violence and community violence that that we we've been unable to get out of, and that is you know when in response to the the changes of the 1960s and the threat of rebellion, of course, you know, beginning with Harlem in 1964, after a, a 15-year-old Black high school student was fatally shot by 
a New York police officer and Harlem erupted for several days. You know, this these these rebellions happen through every summer of Johnson's presidency and they and they uh, they they begin to increase in scale and intensity and eventually culminate in you know, the declaration of the war on crime, the launch of the war on crime, and an unprecedented investment on the part of the federal government into local police forces, into militarizing police, into into facilitating the transfer of surplus army weapons from Vietnam. So things like AR-15 and M4 carbine rifles and bulletproof vests and tear gas and helicopters, you know, many of the weapons that are ubiquitous and police departments today, while at the same time expanding policing greatly. And as these programs are being rolled out, beginning in in the late 1960s especially, communities responded um, not by saying, okay, this is, this is, you know, this will help keep us safer. This is what we wanted when we said, you know, this is what we meant that when we said that we wanted equal rights. Many of the communities and especially the Black youth who were targeted by these programs because you know, during this period in the Johnson administration who developed uh, that developed these policies believed that um, that that black men in particular between the ages of 15 and 24 were responsible for the majority of the nation's so-called rioting and crime and then targeted black youth um, accordingly. And, you know, the, the kids responded when a police officer would come and arrest them for playing in the park or, uh, you know, come and break up a family gathering. Um, by throwing rocks and bottles at at the police. And, you know, very often when this kind of initial act of uh, collective violence emerged, there was a group of youth who um, began taunting a police officer who who was trying to arrest one of them or maybe trying to brutalize one of them. The police officer would call for backup. More police would come. They might... uh, you know, throw, throw tear gas grenades. And then maybe the parents would come out, more members of the community would come out into the streets. And then all of a sudden you have hundreds of people on the streets. Sometimes the police would then come back with even more force and begin arresting people. And people would then go and, and burn buildings or, um, or loot stores. And so this, you know, this is this, and the cycle would play out for several days. Um, one of the big lessons of the cycle, and one that I think is really important for us to recognize in American policing today is that, you know, police violence, like the, that violence in itself precipitates or, um, or helps to lead to further community violence. Again, you know, when you're, when you respond to ordinary and everyday activity as something that's criminal, um, you know, people people tend to respond or meet that violence with violence. I mean, this is something too that um, I think there are really important distinctions between what we saw in the late sixties and and um, and early seventies, and really through the remainder of the twentieth century, and what we saw um, beginning in Ferguson in two thousand fourteen, which is that you know in the sixties and seventies, m- most of the rebellions, the political violence that emerged in black communities, were was in response to the policing of ordinary and everyday activity. And, you know, when you get to Ferguson in 2014, the the cities that have turned, you know, to, to violence, the, the, the people who uh, burned buildings or looted stores or threw water bottles or rocks at police, all of these protest incidents started peacefully. And most of the protests of 2020 were peacefully and became violent after the police started beating people or throwing tear gas grenades. Um, so we're still very much in this cycle. And as long as 
the kind of fundamental logics of policing remain and police continue to be embraced as the solution to uh, managing poverty and inequality, the cycle will unfortunately continue. And so you speak to, or you spoke to the fact that, you know, there, we haven't learned our lesson yet, right? So, yeah. or, you know, maybe some communities have, but not, um, not nationally, right? Really. And the thing that really, really came, came to, came to my mind as well is, so, um, for the American Academy of Pediatrics, right, there was a study done, I believe in, it was either late last year, um, that looked at police encounters, right, with Black and Hispanic adolescents. And the data showed that Black and Hispanic adolescents are more likely to, del- to die from police encounters than white, white teens. And again, this, this happened in the past, right? So I wanted to get your thoughts about this continued pattern and your thoughts about how do we how do we address that? Yeah, and let me just say too, I think you know many of the com- communities where these policing and surveillance and and certainly mass incarceration has been most energetically implemented know that you know they've learned they they've known the lesson. Um, they, they knew the lesson. They they knew back in the sixties and seventies when they're saying we don't want police, we want resources, we want community control. This is what black people have long been calling for. This is these have been the guiding principles of the Black freedom struggle. And in part due to, again, you know, this investment and embrace in policing and locking people up as as a solution rather than investing in the people, rather than investing in the communities has created this dynamic where, you know, as that study from the American Pediatrics Association shows, you know, not only are uh, youth of color more likely to die by police than their white counterparts, but they're also you know, those who are living in communities that are over-policed and underprotected are also more likely to die at the hands of one another. I mean, so you have to kind of ask yourself, like, why is it that gun violence in our communities is so high in the communities that are policed so heavily? That that should be an indication to people that something about police isn't working. It's not actually preventing violence and social harm. It's not actually keeping people safe. There's got to be something else is needed. And that something else is goes beyond the police. And I think that's, you know, that's really thinking beyond the police as a solution is really what uh, so much of the protest movements today are are about. And I think what was interesting and really poignant about some of the, um, some of the, the evidence you present, right, in your book about how the cycle is continuing or has been perpetuated is that those communities, right? There were, there were, I think there's one part of the chapter, right? With one later in the, later in the book where the, um, the Rodney King, um, incident, right. You know, his, mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. and how, um, quote unquote gang members, right. They basically created a, a manifesto, a doctrine to say like, how can we improve our communities? So they were coming to the table, but yet for all the work that they were doing, and even there were some other examples of how communities, okay, you know, they they laid out what's going to help us, right? What's going to help our community? And no one listened. Right. I mean, there's so many, I, that, that's like one of the tragedies of the book and one of the recurring, un, most unfortunate recurring themes is that there's so many missed opportunities. Like it's not as if 
policing was the only and incarceration were the only solutions. The alternatives were presented time and time again, and policymakers chose to ignore them. So in the case of Los Angeles in 92, you know, before the rebellion, Sets of the of Crips and Watts groups in in Watts, Los Angeles, had be, began began to talk about a truce. Had began to say, you know what, we need to stop this violence. It's not it's not it's not how it's not doing anything for us. It's not doing anything else for our for the community. We need to figure out how we can redirect this and 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 turn turn what we have into something positive. And and that that truce really took hold during the rebellion, which presented you know South LA an opportunity a new opportunity to rebuild. And basically, you know, many residents were calling for grassroots empowerment in the in the rebuilding and restructuring effort following the 92 rebellion in LA, which was the most um damaging and destructive of the of the 20th century and, and probably in, in in US history as a whole. And the Crimson Blood said, "Okay, we're gonna we're, we're gonna stop the violence." We're going to stop shooting each other, and we want to be we we we're going to develop an economic plan for our community, and 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 we want to we want to change things. So um, we want to create a, a better and more vibrant community, and with that, the violence is going to end. But here's what we need from you. It was essentially like a just under they called for just under four billion dollars to completely revitalize the infrastructure of South, South LA in really innovative and exciting ways. They called for new investments in public schools. They called for computers for every kid. Um, they called for an end to force busing. They say, we don't want to go to other schools. We want to go to our schools. We just want our schools to be better. Uh, the Crips and Bloods proposal called for uh, residency requirements and policing so that, you know, essentially tenant patrols so that uh, residents themselves would be responsible for public safety. They called for universal health care for Black residents in South Central. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, most importantly, at the center of it, they called for jobs. They said, okay, you know, like, we'll stop banging if you give us economic opportunities and jobs that we want to do. No problem. Like, this is this is a prescription to ending the violence. And, and none, none of what they said, I mean, they you know, was about the police. And um, and for me, that story was just so important to highlight because, you know, unlike the Kerner Commission in 1968, which was a task force of the Johnson administration, which similar similarly uh, recommended, you know, a set of, a, as a response to rebellion, um, you know, a massive infusion of resources into low-income communities of color to the federal government, another policy that was ignored. So unlike the commissions, and there were many other commissions um, at the state and local level who also recognized the socioeconomic root causes of the political violence and um, and and the, the, the most effective remedies to address them outside of the police. But one of the things that I think was so important about the LA chapter is that it was one of many examples of a concrete plan, because of course residents are always, you know, residents are calling for these these kinds of investments in jobs, you know, as they're throwing rocks in, and um, and burning stores. This is what residents are always saying. But the Crips and Bloods proposal is a concrete, beautiful proposal that was completely ignored uh, by authorities in in Los Angeles. And you just have to wonder with all of these things, you know, had we made that investment, had our elected officials made that investment back in 68, you know, had in Los Angeles, uh, 
municipal officials invested in and believed in the very promising program that the Crips and Bloods put forward, what would this country look like today? What would Los Angeles look like today? Oh, I, yeah. I also want to write that story, right? <laughs> Just kind of envision right. what it would look like, right? So then maybe that might become a blueprint. And I think, I mean, I'm hoping now, right? We'll see. If now might be the the point uh, in history where we can make make some changes, right? And that's the thing. I mean, yeah. I think there've been there's been some progress, right? But when you when you keep seeing the same pattern happening over and over again, right, it does make you wonder, right? It's like either there really is not, you know, this just this lip service paid to the change, or are, are individuals so overwhelmed they're like, well, you know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's the question, though. I mean, because it does feel like we're really at a crossroads and we have to do something soon and fast. Um, And it does seem like now is the time. And that's part of the reason why, you know, especially writing the book against the backdrop of COVID and the protests and the presidential election. I just felt like this this history was was a way that I could contribute. Um to the movement, to the struggle, to the cause. And it just felt so, uh, so urgent to me. And, and, and let me, you know, let me also say, since I have the pleasure of um, doing, you know, talking to you about parenting issues as a mother, I mean, I, you know, my, my daughter uh, is almost two and I'm expecting um, a son in July. And for me, you know, I, I, that's why I do this work, right? Like I want to build a better world for my children and my grandchildren and my great, great, great grandchildren and everybody's babies, you know, not just my babies, but I look at them and, and I, they, they're what inspire me. You know, I look at my daughter, like, this is, this is why I'm doing this. This is why this history is so important. And, you know, times when I wanted to give up, um, you look to the younger generations, even my students and, and say, you know, I, I, I might not see everything that I'm building towards in my lifetime, but, um, but I, I do this because I want to make a better world for you and for all of us. And I think I, and I thank you for, for doing that work because I think over the last couple of years, like with the six, you know, from the 1619 project, mm-hmm. you know, even to your work and other, other writers, I think history, right. Is becoming the catalyst for change, right? Because there's a, or anything that, you know, I, I really believe, believe so. Cause even when you think about like we were talking a little bit about, um, some of the adaptations, you know, regarding, um, Lovecraft country, mm-hmm. um, the Tulsa, you know, the Tulsa, um, massacre, I mean, you can call them, right. They're massacre. It was yeah. a massacre. It was a massacre. Right. There's so many people who are like waking up. It's like, okay, that occurred. And I didn't know about it. Right. Cause it's not in the history book. Right. Right. And, and what's nice about it is that history, especially told from different perspectives, provides a, a, a broader picture, right? And a clear picture, right? I, I'm almost liking it to pixels, right? So the more we can find out about what's been going on and the foundation of our society, it becomes clearer, right? The, the, the lens that we use, and I think it should be history, to, de- to determine and define where we've been so we can really know how to move forward. 
Well, listeners, I'm my my smile is is really wide because I love it when people say that history is the uh, the tool for us because I I believe you know I believe it is one of the most important tools if not the most important tool because if you don't and that's why I decided to become a historian um, and why you know one of my most important mentors Manny Marable. I mean, he said history is a weapon in which we fight, meaning in which we fight to advance the black freedom struggle. And that's why I became a historian, because we're not going to be able to figure out how we're not going to be able to figure out our present and where to go in the future unless we really understand our past. And that's the thing about what part of our unique experience in this country is that so much of our history has been denied. And now today, even with the 1619 Project and all of the backlash against that, we see that like people are scared of the truth. Like even confronting, truly confronting our history, the 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 devastating, tragic um, uh, destruction of the community in Tulsa, and the ways in which you know we have consistently resisted the rebellion, the history that you know I'm I'm trying to bring to the table. All of this, you know, people don't want it to be told, and they say it's you know they want this story of American progress as if everything is all good, and as if these problems are all the result of individual and personal responsibility rather than historical inequalities and um and and socioeconomic exclusion. And so it's just for me. You know, we're not going to be able we're not going to we're not going to be able to move forward unless we really. And it's not I mean, of course, you know, black, you know, not just black people, this whole country um, recognizes just how deep oppression, racial and racial inequality runs. And you can't do that without without historical context. And I and in some ways, right, I you hear people say. Or maybe the fear, right, is that because of history, it paints one group of 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 people as the bad, bad, bad people, right? Yeah. Where, as I really like to rethink of it as, you know, what there's a reason why this is occurring, right? This is a there's a reason. It's not necessarily pointing fingers. I think most, I think true historians, right, and I think what what I love again about your book is that it's not pointing a finger at the police. It's not pointing a finger at black people. What it's saying is, is that this system, this country has that, you know, has chosen to, you know, the priorities that they've chosen, the policies that have been created, the laws and investments and certain certain things creates one, a divestment and an erosion of a true opportunity to create cohesion, collaboration, cooperation and innovation. Right. So. So if anything, I, I think, you know, no one's pointing fingers. It's really about if you, if you can really have a mirror held up to you, right, into our society, it's not pointing a finger at you. But what it's saying is, is that we need to look deeper. Maybe it's not, maybe mirror is the wrong analogy, but I think it's an opportunity for us, not necessarily to point fingers, but opportunity is to try to figure out, again, what role can we each play to improve it, right? Now that we know what's the cause, right? We we shouldn't. I mean, it's it's scary, right? To understand, like, okay, we have to dismantle a whole system of systems. That I get. That I totally get. But now it's not. It's not about an individual pointing fingers at individuals. Right. It's like you know what we have to. We have to hold each other accountable as a society to really move move. You know, raise the. Every so everyone can can 
can can feel uplifted and included. Right. I think you I think you said that beautifully. And I think, you know, what comes with that is of course the the fight to dismantle the various systems of oppression as they have played out in in our communities, but also deal, you know, as a community dealing with with, with some of the things that um that 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 hold us back and keep us down as a as a community. And I think, you know, if we're gonna realize this change, it's gonna take I mean, one, it's going to take a major movement of shifting people's hearts and minds and building political will and coalition to be able to demand the change. And of course, you know, for that, in many ways, I I look to the history of the freedom struggle and the civil rights movement, which, um, you know, which 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 came about after decades of organizing and coalition building and keeping the pressure on politicians. I mean, it's not as if if we want these changes to be realized that officials are just going to enact new policies out of the goodness of their heart. You know, you have to keep the pressure on. And so keeping that pressure on in many ways is tireless work. And there are many different ways to support that movement, but it is going to take, it's going to take all of us. And it may mean that some of us or many of us have to give something up in the process. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that's a very good point. I mean, as I think as rosy as I'd like to think the world could be right. I mean, it, it, sometimes like, I have to find hope, right? I have to continue to be hopeful mm-hmm. because otherwise it's like, I'll go into despair, right? I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's not a place to be, right? Especially when you like, we, we work in, we work in professions that we, we ultimately are there to serve others, right? So you're an educator, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like, okay, I have to see patients, but even being, being parents, right? My kids are older, you know, I have a 19 year old and a 22 year old, but I still see them in this, this stage of life where they're still adolescents or young adults, right? Emerging adults. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they still, they still look, look to their parents to see, okay, is there, is there room for optimism? Is there a place? And, but in most cases, I'm actually looking to look into them as yeah. well. Because like you like you brilliantly put in this book, right, the fact that adolescents, right, and even younger people have led these movements. Mm-hmm. And this and this and it was really evident last year. History, you know, history repeated itself, right? Adolescents and young adults, they are leading the movement. Yeah, that's actually I I was thinking the same thing. You know, I look um I don't look to other adults uh <laughs> for inspiration. I look to my students. Um and I looked to, you know, again, my, my kids, although my, my kids, I, I guess my kids, my kids are what inspire me, but my students give me hope. That's where I, I think the young people, the new generations and, and, the, and the people who led the, the young people who led the protest movements historically and last summer, you know, that's what gives me hope. That's the inspiration. Cause I think they are having lived through, you know, the, and kind of come of age, you know, I'm thinking about, um, your your children too, and 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 the kids I teach um, in college, you know, they came of age as in consciousness during the Trump administration and COVID, and then to see and you know the the protests of last summer are going to be imprinted on their in their memory. And I don't know, I guess I just have to believe that they are not really standing for the old systems and the old hierarchies that have defined this country historically. Like I, I I really believe that I'm hopeful. And again, you know, I mean, I do have, 
to a certain extent, a self-selected group of students who want to learn about these topics and come to my class. And they, you know, they have a sense of probably my politics, but, you know, they really give me hope that, that my, my children are going to be, they're going to be okay. <laughs> Cause they're not standing for it. They're not standing for it anymore. I think, you know, in some ways that's what, um, that's what these last few years have been about. And I think the fact that they're not standing for it anymore is why there has been so much repression and pushback and all these anti-democratic laws emerging to try to prevent the realization of the, the, the true democracy um, that most and, and, the, and the kinds of social policies that most Americans want and are ready for. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think for me, like to see, you know, last year when uh, my youngest son, you know, told me they wanted to go, he wanted to go to a to a local protest. Right. Uh, Black Lives Matter protest. You know, a part of me was a part of me, you know, had had this dual. Not It's not the exact dual consciousness. Right. But in the sense of maybe a cognizant di- dis- dissonance. Right. This idea of holding two truths, this fear mm. of him. Yeah. Okay, and confrontation, right? A yep. rebellion occurring, right? Versus a pride, right? And that, okay, that's my kid, right? He wants to, he wants to do, he wants to do good. He wants to stand up and and fight for justice, right? And and I think that's difficult. It is difficult as a parent, right? To for that, right? You want to, and especially I think because of white supremacy, because of racism in our country. I think for so so many parents, like you live in fear and you have to fight against the urge to parent right. fear, you know, fear-based parenting, right? And being being open to, you know what? If this if you allow a grain of hope, right, to to take to take um to take seed and take root, then that sort of that sort of um provides a buttress for you, right? I think as a parent, so that when something like this happens. Yes, you are fearful, but at the same time, you know what, you gotta you gotta let that let it to the side and let your child like, you know, be and do, right? Because that's what you want them to be good people and you can't hold them back from being and that's part of being good, I think, right? And and doing doing the work. They have to do the work and find a path for themselves so that they can make the world better. Right. You're you're I you're foreshadowing, I know what I imagine will be dilemmas that I will also face. Like I'm I'm right there with you. I feel it. So I'm thinking like of course, you know, I, I want my kids to go out and protest. And but my instinct is also like, wait, you know, like as as their mom, like, no, I want to protect you. And as black children, you know, like you are particularly vulnerable to the police violence that I study. So, um, you know, I imagine that it's something where but ultimately, you know, it's about, um, you know, I, 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 I am deeply committed to the freedom and liberation of my people, of our people, as I imagine, um, or I deeply hope that my kids will be too. And so I know it's, um, it's, you know, it's not just about that, but the mama bear and me, if I'm not out there in the streets with them, will be <laughs> biting my nails, <laughs> waiting to make sure that they're okay. I mean, but, you know, to a certain extent too, every time as Black children, our, our children leave the house, you know, there, there's that fear and vulnerability that we have because because of police violence and because of white supremacy, right? And the fact that like neither of these things have been adequately addressed uh, for for reasons that I that I that I tried to illuminate in the book. Yeah, and I think yeah, I, again, like I said, I keep saying like you connected a lot of dots, right? There are things that 
you know, you kind of have a feeling about, right? But not being a not being a historian, reading reading the work, and then again the evidence that you present because many of it, many of the things that you highlight in the book, that many of the examples are like, okay, one I hadn't hadn't heard about some of the um, some of the rebellions that occurred in different um, states and cities, but what but was also interesting. So that was important for me to know. Um, but the other piece is that. That there's a long-standing history, right? In many of these areas, like Ferguson, um, other areas like Minnesota, Baltimore, Philadelphia, right? Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, DC. Okay, like there's a reason that that there continues to be this these beats, right? And this this constant repetition of of these rebellions in the cycle. Mm-hmm. Right. So so that was so that was just interesting. Again, that was again, it really solidify yeah it makes sense it it totally makes sense that was one of the things that you know i wasn't i didn't necessarily expect to find when i started getting interested in in these topics as i was researching my first book and that is just like how extensive rebellion was and I'm, i'm really grateful that i was able to include a 25 page timeline of all the rebellions that occurred between 64 and 2001, like well over 2000 and not just in big cities, but in small towns across the United States. I think the point being that all of us have um, a stake in this. We all have a stake in this history. Um, even, even if you think, you know, if it originally thought, Oh, well, this is, this didn't happen in, you know, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or this didn't happen in, in Waterloo, Iowa, you know, that happened in Los Angeles and Detroit. No, it did. You know, I bet if, if, if you listeners, if you, if you do pick up the book, um, if you, you know, even if you browse it at a library in, in the bookstore, turn and, and don't buy it, although it'd be great if you did, but turn to the last section and you'll see, I, I would bet, you know, the, the last part of the book with the rebellion timeline, and I would bet that your hometown or city that you lived in or a city that you lived near is in there. Just look it up. We all have a stake in this. This is all of our history. So what I've been asking a lot of my guests, that, you know, is about reimagining um, systems to improve um, to improve um, for improve the life of Black children and families. And so I wanted to get your take on it as well, given your research on uh, policing. What are your thoughts about if you could reimagine? What were your what would be your thoughts of how to reimagine um, the current systems or even think outside the box, like to to really really make a difference? Well, one of the things you know, one of the, the the first steps is we have to end mass incarceration, which has had just such a devastating impact on uh, families of color in particular. I mean, I I don't I don't have the exact statistics off the top of my head, but I mean, disproportionate and alarming numbers of of black children in particular um, have either a parent in prison or a parent that's been to prison at some point during their childhood. I mean, like slavery, right? Mass incarceration has literally uh, ripped families apart and ending it will will improve public safety. I mean, you know, for a long time, policymakers said, well, incarceration is a crime deterrent. And, and this is, you know, this is the blocking people up is the best way to solve crime. And we now know the best data and research shows that there's no link between incarceration and crime rate. So it's not this great crime deterrent. Um, Again, a better crime deterrent are the things the Crips and Bloods were talking about in their proposal in 92, jobs, healthcare, uh, housing, educational opportunities, college scholarships. That's what 
uh, deter deters crime. Access to you know mo mobility, <laughs> being mobile deters deters crime. So I think ending mass incarceration would go would would really go a long way. And and you know with that, um, maybe turning back to the to the proposal that the that the Crips and Bloods laid out, turning back to the Kerner Commission, investing in families, investing in things like early childhood education, which we know. Uh, leads to lower arrest rates among youth who have been through programs like Head Start in the future, investing in job training programs and job creation programs for, for young people who are vulnerable to gun violence, um, investing in kids rather than investing in uh, institutions to lock kids up. <laughs> is a way to, is, is how we should be, is how in a democracy in particular, we should be thinking about um, what, a, what a reimagined and vibrant community would look like. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. Anything for kids. I'm, yeah, I'm all for kids and families. So before, before we head out, um, is there, for listeners who want to follow you and learn more about you, what are the best places, like either social media website for them to follow you? So I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth Hinton. It's at E-L-I-Z-A-B-H-I-N-T-O-N. And unfortunately, I know I'm I'm way behind the times, but I'm a historian who's somewhat adverse to technology, but I'm not on really on Facebook or uh or Instagram or anything else. Sometimes I'll pop into Clubhouse, but um, which is also at Elizabeth Hinton. Um, but mostly I'm I'm on Twitter. So thank you so much for for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Yeah, I learned so much, and it's, it has been a pleasure. Thank you, Jackie. The pleasure's been all mine. All right. Have a great rest of the day. You too. So. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of What is Black? And thank you for listening. And again, Dr. Hinton for joining me today. She shared some great information and ideas. Just want to let everyone know our music and editing is done by Manny Simone. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. And to stay up to date, sign up for our newsletter at whatisblack.co. Thank you. Thank you.